Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Liam Clifford, and my co-host is Emily Hutchinson today. We are with Danica Quaino, um, a master's student in psychology. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Great, great. Well, we're, we're, off, we're off to the races, as they say. Um, we always like starting these interviews, Danica, um, by just uh, relaying onto us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up at Western. My story out to Western is probably pretty, uh, it's a long convoluted one, but I am doing my second year of my master's in clinical psychology. So I came to Western for a supervisor, actually. Uh, Dr. Rachel Calagero is my current supervisor. And I wanted to do work with her in the area of exercise and eating disorders. And she actually, it's kind of a, it might be a pretty stars aligned story, I might say. Um, she was in England when I actually started thinking about going into clinical psychology. And over the years, I found out that she moved out here to Canada. And I had always really wanted to work with her. And I just loved a lot of the different ideas she had around exercise and eating disorders. And when I found out that she moved to Canada, I jumped at the chance to be able to be her student. And that is how I ended up um, out in, at Western. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's always nice to hear people's stories and, you know, wherever they're joining us from. So we do welcome you uh, to the Mustang community. And um, you, you mentioned it very briefly in your first answer, um, but explain a little more about what you're researching with your current supervisor. Yeah, so in my research area, I research the role of exercise in the context of eating disorders. So in this context, often individuals have a really kind of sticky, not so great relationship with activity where like I've had some clients who were, you know, 16, 14, breaking out of their houses and go for runs at two in the mornings without their parents knowing because there really starts to become this really dysfunctional kind of compulsive, impulsive, really rigid anxiety provoking relationship with exercise and um, that kind of comes to light as those disorders really manifest in someone's life and it's it's a really interesting part of an eating disorder and one that's understudied and I actually have a background in kinesiology so I didn't do any psychology prior to my first master's but when I got to the end um, of my kin degree, I started working at a hospital and an eating disorder unit as an internship. And I was like, well, how do I merge exercise? And like this idea of like, I, I really don't do much in psychology, but I do do exercise work. And they're like, oh no, there's a huge role of exercise in eating disorders. And this is it. And probably in the last five to 10 years, there's become more and more interest and understanding around how exercise really does um, impact quite greatly um, eating disorders and how they manifest and then both in, you know, what the risk of someone having a relapse is or in that illness chronicity. Um, so that's really how those two intertwine if you want to just scratch the surface. You mentioned uh, dysfunctional exercise, which is a new term that I hadn't heard before. Could you define that for us and like let us know, is it being secretive about it? Is it too much exercise? Like what, what's coming into play for that? 
Yeah, so it's pretty neat. So dysfunctional exercise um, in the context of eating disorders, there's a ton of terms right now that you can use to define it. There's if you so there's a big manual that's called the DSM and that's what we use to kind of so if I need to diagnose somebody with depression or anxiety, I look in this big book and it tells me all these criteria. But in this big book, it says excessive exercise and there's other people who call it compulsive exercise and there's other people who call it exercise addiction or exercise anorexia and so basically all this these terms kind of flow down into the idea that there is a dysfunctional relationship where active with activity right it's not serving its function and creating health and fulfillment in your movements and activity for that person and so kind of intuitively you might think, okay, well like dysfunctional exercise, that means that like you're going to the gym and you know, you're not being very kind to yourself when you're talking to the gym, you're like always trying to hit that extra mile. You're like maybe exercising when you have an injury, but we've kind of come to understand that it isn't just about those gym settings. It's also, you know, we have some clients who like will go grocery shopping and every time they pick up an item, they'll do a lap of the grocery store every single time so yeah. it's this really interesting phenomenon where it goes even beyond exercise and it's it's in so many aspects of your movement and some of dr caligero's work that is part of my work as well my focus is mostly on that dysfunctional relationship with exercise and eating disorders but there's also kind of this idea emerging that there can be a dysfunctional relationship with exercise in the general population too those people who like they're really rigid and they're really mean to themselves and and you know that kind of all or nothing attitude well if I if I'm not gonna you know do it all then I'm then tell with it I'm not gonna go to the gym today or I'm not gonna go on that walk because what's the point and it kind of leads us to this idea of like well why not do it at all then and it, so it actually can cause some people who might not have an eating disorder to result in just being like well I'm not going to do it at all. So it inhibits activity engagement for others. So it's kind of cool. It's pretty, it's pretty convoluted in all these different spaces. So I hope I explained it well. Yeah. Does that make a little bit more sense and how I got you there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It does. It does. And it's actually, it's provoked a question in my mind, um, sort of like a chicken or egg question. Um, when we talk about this dichotomy that emerges with eating disorders as well as the uh, dysfunctional exercise, which one normally comes first? Do you notice a trend that eating orders spawn this dysfunctional exercise or can dysfunctional exercise spawn eating disorders? So that is a good question and has bamboozled the research area. Um, not forever. There is some evidence that kind of says to us that Dysfunctional exercise is one of the first symptoms that emerges, one of the strongest maintaining symptoms that continues your eating disorders, and actually is one of the symptoms that if you're continuing to do this type of activity after you get discharged, you're more likely to relapse. It was actually out of 150 symptoms that they assessed for which ones would kind of indicate who was going to relapse. It was the second outside of um, social isolation. So if you don't have support after you've gone through eating disorder treatment, that really tells us that you're probably going to have some sort of relapse. But also if you're engaging in dysfunctional exercise, that also kind of tells us the same thing. And I just, as I talk about this, really want to clarify that 
dysfunctional exercise really isn't something that is just in what activity you're doing. It's not about if you do six hours of activity or two hours of activity. It really is about how you think about activity, your thoughts and your ideas around your relationship with exercise. So how impulsive are you? How compulsive are you? How rigid are you about it? You know, how much anxiety does it cause you if you miss an exercise session? So when we talk about engaging in dysfunctional exercise after relapse, it's not just like, oh, it's good. If this person's going to the gym after they've been discharged, they're going to relapse. It really is like if this person misses a gym session and anxiety is going to a 10, then that would kind of tell us that, hey, like we might be running into some sticky spots for you in a couple months here. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how our dysfunctional exercise, how is that treated? Like, because you mentioned it's kind of a, how the person like feels towards exercise, like kind of their idea. So how do they go about um, helping them out? So great question. And one that has been on a lot of people's minds, I think for quite a long time and something that I think in the area of eating disorders is pretty taboo to be quite honest with you. So when I did my first master's degree, what I kind of looked into was I talked to a bunch of clinicians and said like, well, what do you guys do about this? Like, how do you talk about this? How do you treat this? And basically um, everyone said, well, we just, it just, we just do it. It just, we don't really talk about it. We don't really do anything about it. It's kind of a taboo area. Like, oh, we'll do, but we'll do yoga. But like we don't do exercise, but we don't do anything else. So it really up until quite recently, there hasn't been much in terms of like, how do we even talk about this? Never mind, what do we do about this? Um, but probably in the last since 2016-ish, there's been a lot of momentum forward in terms of like, okay, obviously we can't just like leave this and not talk about it because it's clearly something that's very much impacting how long somebody's sick for, as well as like, if someone's going to die from an eating disorder, there's kind of two ways that that happens and it's cardiovascular arrest and um, dying by suicide. So cardiovascular arrest obviously if you're someone who's dysfunctionally exercising and you're going for these long runs and you're not nourishing yourself well that's going to tell me that like you have a pretty high risk of really injuring your body if not something worse right so as a result of that coming really to the forefront and kind of new research coming out and new studies kind of taking that risk and saying okay so what if we did do some resistance training and lift some weights and treatment and really develop some groups and cbt groups so when i say cbt it's cognitive behavioral therapy so that's kind of thinking about your thoughts around exercise as well as like doing some stuff in real life to combat those thoughts so that's cbt so there's been some cbt groups developed about dysfunctional exercise and then as well as like doing it in real life and so part of that has been um, the safe exercise at every stage guideline so that was something that came out of some research that i've been lucky enough to work on with some colleagues and essentially it's a standard of practice, hopefully, um, that kind of helps shape, you know, like what is going on with this individual's body in terms of all of their psychology, 
their physiology, their biochemical markers, where is their nutrition plan going? How are they doing with following through with that? And then matching all of those elements to amount of activity that's appropriate for them. So maybe what you're doing now is doing some stretching in bed. And we're also going to have some conversations about like, has your relationship with exercise and what has that looked like for you in the last little while? So that's kind of what there is out there right now but I think your question is very poignant in this moment because it is something that is very much in a pivotal point for eating disorder treatment and you know that that's why it's so important to continue and facilitate these conversations because I know people in my life that have been touched by eating disorders um, as well as my friends um, and others uh, who have experienced this. So um, we are, uh, we're happy to continue to ask those poignant questions. Now, in regards to eating disorders, there are a couple ones that I'm at least familiar with. Would you be able to ramble off the top of your head, maybe like the top three most common ones that you see on a daily basis? Absolutely. So there's always that like super hot topic one, which is anorexia nervosa, which is kind of that idea of someone, you know, not having the ability to, you know, eat what they should be eating right now, really having that fear of maybe gaining weight or really wanting to really because for men, we have to think about, so the fear for men might not necessarily be about gaining weight and fatness, but of like wanting to be in a certain shape or size, right? Like that drive for muscularity, which is a little bit different for women in general. Um, but that one's kind of your classic idea of anorexia nervosa. And then there's bulimia nervosa, which that one you kind of think of that binging purging. So you're eating a lot and you're either vomiting or taking laxatives or engaging in dysfunctional exercise exactly to kind of burn off those ideas or those um, foods that you consumed. And then within those, there's kind of some snazzy subtypes that we use as well. When you were talking about how uh, the disorder presents differently in men and women, it started getting me thinking about who is most at risk of this, if that is true. Like what, what population or what group of people is most likely to develop that or is that true? Is there is there certain people who are more at risk of developing eating disorders than others? Oh, totally, there totally is. So mostly we think about anorexia nervosa, especially like if I say that to you, what do you think? I think of teenage girls in high school. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that's kind of exactly on point. That is exactly kind of who really like embodies that disorder but that's not to say that it's really interesting um they did a study on i can't remember where it is but i will find it for you um how these disorders emerge in westernized cultures right so like that culture where like Heidi Klum is your ideal and Captain America is your ideal and that is what we know and love in terms of like who's going to be in our Victoria's Secret fashion shows and that is how um, we kind of idealize the body in those western cultures and so we kind of did that they did this really interesting study where they introduced kind of these western cultural ideals and within 20 years in a population that like really didn't have any eating disorder kind of ideas in them, kind of these kind of ideas of societal body standards really started to emerge in these cultures. 
So it really takes shape in those Western cultures, but that's not to say that it's purely driven by Western cultural ideals. There's a lot of other underlying components, especially for other disorders, but very much so um, Westernized cultures, young women, but there is definitely this trend emerging where there's a lot more individuals in different cultures who are starting, we're starting to notice increases in eating disorders and in men as well. And in men also, it kind of goes back to that last part we talked about where um, it's about the diagnostic criteria and like noticing how this is manifesting in men differently than women. So that's been a really interesting kind of trend in the last five years-ish. I can certainly speak for um, the male component when I say that I find so often that these eating disorders and dysfunctional exercise are often intertwined with the toxic masculinity that we see with that perpetuates throughout our society. Um, So, you know, it, it, it makes it all the more pertinent to continue to tackle this as best as we can. So We've developed a typology. We know relatively what to look for, but what should we be looking for in each other if we're worried about someone who may be either a little more susceptible or we notice might be teetering a bit? Yeah, that's a really good question. Like how do we take care of our friends and the people around us that we love, right? And that's what it really comes down to. And part of it is like, sometimes you just get that gut feeling when you know that you're like, this friend always likes to like go have cocktails and happy hour with me. And like, somehow they just, they're always ordering water and they never kind of want to have these snacks with me. And it seems to just be really strange and you kind of get that gut feeling. And I think it is important to, to trust that gut feeling, especially when it's someone close to you that you love. And it's also really important to know that it's going to be a sticky conversation and who the heck do you talk to their parents? You talk to another friend. How do you actually have this conversation with that friend? Um, And it might not always go well, but I will tell you that at some point down the line, they will always have appreciated that you had that talk with them and to do that maybe earlier than later. And you know what, if there's nothing there and you're, then they're just like, no, I've had mono for the last two weeks. And like, I feel weird. Like then, okay, great. We're all right. But if it's not, then at least you can say, you know, I did my due diligences. And if they're, you know, it all blows up in your face and no one's ready to kind of have that conversation with you yet, or maybe they're not ready to admit it to themselves, then just be there, you know, like, have those weird meals with them and still always invite them out. And if they say no, then they say no, but like to be there. Cause they remember when we talked about like the two things that kind of relate to relapse, that big thing is social isolation, eating disorders really thrive in it. And so just like keep being there for them and do your best to kind of trust your gut when you feel like it's a little bit off and worst comes to worst, they're going to be like, what the heck are you talking about? And then you'll be like, okay, we'll find that. But um, that was a great question. And I think it's really about trusting your gut and about seeing if there's like a real sense of stress around mealtimes or like, oh, oh, I can't go for that walk with you. And like that sense of stress that can kind of come out there. I'm not sure if you've ever been around somebody with an eating disorder, but you can, you can kind of feel it. And you kind of just are like, this just doesn't seem like, would you be this stressed about, you know, that meal or about like that bout of activity? And so kind of 
looking back on yourself and knowing your healthy relationships with those components of life and going from there. What resources are there available for people who might be experiencing an eating disorder or even family members? Like where can they go to get help for this? Yeah, so in Canada and probably North America overall, there's a couple different websites you can go to. Um, you can always go to the Eating Disorder Association of Canada website. That's called EDAC. Um, they have some good resources. NEDA is also, N-E-D-A is also a good website. They have a lot of information. And I think they even have a hotline, like a one 800 hotline that you can actually call and get some support in terms of what to do. Uh, they, they have some really nice websites where it's like, this is what you look for. This is what it would be. And it's really nicely laid out. There's like nice fonts. It's a nice navigatable website. That's really good. And the other one is the Academy for Eating Disorders. That's kind of a, a conference body, but they have a lot of information in terms of both that academic flavor to it and like numbers where you can help and call uh, somebody as well. So those are kind of the three top ones and I can send those through to you if you guys would like, if that would be helpful. Yeah, no, I, I think that would be um, because we um, should definitely provide some links in the uh, description bit when, once we publish the episode. So um, we'd be happy to share those. And I'd encourage any any Western listeners to uh, avail of the university's resources as well. Um, there are a number of sites that can help you. So um, I really do encourage everyone to uh, to seek help. And you, you are stronger for it. So you know, Danica, I find it so interesting that, you know, we're able to combine so many factors in studying eating disorders and dysfunctional exercise. It truly is interdisciplinary to a certain extent. Um, and I'm noticing a lot of psychological and physiological aspects. Um, is there ever a point in time throughout either, you know, your own, you know, diagnosing others or, you know, reading the research where it's been difficult to ascertain what's been inhibited more, the psychology of the person or the physiology of the person? Yeah, so there's some really interesting components to that where we actually see in someone who's severely undernourished that we can't, the first step is making sure that we can get some sort of nutrition into them because we almost see this, this component of them where they're just not thinking clearly. And where it's kind of almost been compared to a psychotic disorder, when they're that in starved state, I'm not at all saying that it is a psychotic disorder, it is not, it's not. But they have these ideas um, that are just very skewed. And as we're able to get them some nutrition, they're able to kind of have some clearer thinking around food and their health and their life. And so that's really interesting. And it's an ethical point actually, where it's when we can actually say no, like ethically we are mandating you to be in the hospital and for this to happen because your thinking isn't clearly. And there's been some really cool kind of brain studies that have gone on where they've shown like differences in different parts of the brain to kind of support how much our nutrition and lack of nutrition can really mess up our thinking and, and really skew how we view ourselves, right? Cause it's about how we're viewing ourselves and then also skew like the physical sense of the body, which we think here, I kind of touched mostly on 
anorexia and like really restrictive eating, but in many of the different senses, like the body really takes a big toll um, physically or, or big, big toll is taken on you physically. And that I think that we also, I would encourage us to move away from the idea of, you know, only someone who is really thin can have an eating disorder. Most people with bulimia actually are of normal weight, right? And people who have eating disorders who are really thin are like a very, very minor, minor percentage of individuals who have eating disorders, where they're actually touching a lot more people's lives than we would think. And not just in eating disorders, but in disordered eating. So things like, I'm not sure if you've heard of orthorexia, that's kind of a fun I shouldn't say that, but it is kind of a fun one for me as a researcher. It's interesting. Um, but that this idea of like being super healthy all the time and like to the point where like your hair is falling out, your nails are falling out, but like you will not eat a chip because it isn't made of like agave syrup and like some sort of cactus. Like I, I guess agave is cactus, but like some sort of like those super, super health driven individuals were like, that was also talked about as a disorder itself. But sometimes if you think about it, well, like, is that just another form of anorexia and restricting your eating? Cause it really does begin to damage the body when the psyche has been damaged as well. Well, we thank you very much for your insight yeah. today um, on this very important conversation. Um, and before I hand it over to the outro, would you mind just restating those websites you had mentioned for the resources earlier? Absolutely. Um, before I restate them, I also just want to say that COVID has probably done a number on a lot of people, right? Like thriving in isolation is very much true with eating disorders. And if you can go to any of these ed sites, send somebody an email and they will help you. Um, people are more willing than you would know to help you and make some room for you in their practices or get you a resource. So one of the first ones that I actually forgot to mention the first time is the Looking Glass Foundation. They're out of British Columbia, but they're great. They have different moderated anonymous groups that you can take part in. A lot of free resources that you can use. So I would suggest the Looking Glass Foundation. I would also recommend um, NIDA. They will also help. Um, they have a lot of resources and just general information. EDAC is the Eating Disorder Association of Canada. They're more academically driven, but they also could have some good information. And the Academy for Eating Disorders, they're mostly in the States, but again, can help you just garner some really good and up-to-date information about these different disorders. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much again for sharing uh, both your insight as well as uh, the resources that I would encourage uh, anyone to reach out to should they find they need it. This concludes another episode of GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Liam Clifford. And my co-host today was Emily Hutchinson. We've been speaking with Danica Quainel, and this episode was produced by Hira Nadim. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have yourself a wonderful day. Mm -hmm.